0: With each passing year and each generation in the automotive world, more and more cars are becoming collector items. From your grandfather's 35 Packard to a 63 Beetle convertible or iconic 80s Ferrari tucked away in your garage, wouldn't it be awesome if there was a way to make it easier to keep these kinds of vehicles on the road? No matter what, we all agree, we want to keep these cars running and looking their best for as long as we can. Enter Chris Bright co-founder of the Collector Part Exchange, CPX for short, a new community designed specifically for petrol heads, an easy and fun-to-use website supporting great businesses that keep this hobby vibrant. And with that, let's welcome Chris to BreakFix.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. That was an awesome intro. <laughs> <laughs>
0: As I start out many of these interviews, every great story has an origin. So let's talk about the origin story behind CPX, the who, the what, the where, the why behind the effort. So Chris, tell us all about it.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, how far do you want me to go back to birth or no? Collector Part Exchange, it was kind of a happy accident. I've been in tech startups and an entrepreneur pretty much for my entire career. That's a natural place for me. And I'd actually been the co-founder of a pretty successful software company out here in Portland, Oregon that got acquired in 2017. And we were continuing to operate the company. But once that transaction happens, things start to change culturally and just operationally. And it became less interesting. I'm more of a startup person than I am like running and going concern type. Of thing. So I decided it was time to leave. And and one of my fellow executives, Aaron, who's my business partner now, decided that he wanted to leave too. And I said, I'm going to start a new company. I have no idea what it's going to be. We decided to just brainstorm. So I rented a cabin out in the woods. We were totally disconnected, only heated by a, a little wood burning fire out in this cold old growth forest. And we just started brainstorming. And we got those post it notes that stick on the walls. And we would like just sit down and randomly start spouting out ideas and writing them up. If someone had been passing by, they'd think we were the Unabomber or something like that. And
0: <laughs> guessing these ideas range the gamut, right? From one end of the spectrum to the other. So how did you That's settle right. on cars?
1: Yeah. During that conversation, I said, I've been into cars for my adult life. And I said, Aaron, There's this thing that happens in Portland in April on one of the wettest weekends of the year. It's called a swap meet. This swap meet attracts 120,000 people and messes up traffic for days. People love it. And I don't understand how that continues to exist in this electronic e-commerce Amazon world. I said, there's gotta be a a better way to connect people and help them find those parts and help them get what they need for their cars because it's really easy to buy stuff at a car level, bring a trailer being the the best example today. But if you wanna buy a car, you can buy a car online. It's not that hard. Buying parts is a completely different story. And, And I had experienced that frustration in my own life. We didn't choose that idea then. We kept it in the hopper of like the good ideas. So we went back and we started looking at all the different things that we had available to us. And this one just continued to come back to us as the best idea. I like the fact that it's in an area that I'm interested in and that's exciting to me personally, but... I honestly think that can be a problem in in the business world. Like if you're a startup person and you do something that you think is cool or fun, usually you don't see the real business opportunity. Right. So I kind of shun those ideas. But this one, the more we looked into it, the better it got because it's a huge marketplace It is one of those places that just hasn't caught up with the modern way of buying and selling things. So if you're looking for a rare part for whatever car, it's pretty difficult to find just by searching in Google. So we know from our backgrounds, Aaron and I, that that's something that can be solved. So we decided we don't want to own parts or sell parts ourselves. We want to support all of these other businesses who haven't yet modernized into the world because- There's new generations of buyers getting into this space and they don't want to pick up the phone. Nobody wants to pick up the phone anymore, it seems like, to call around and look for parts. They just want to go online, find it in Google, and then buy it. That's essentially what we're trying to create is connecting all of these small businesses in the universe of the collector car world and get them into one place where... We can help them be found in Google and help them find new customers wherever they may be. And we're only six months into it, but it's been a really exciting journey so far.
0: So before we get into the more technical details of the how it works and why it works and all that, let's talk about the name for just a second. I have to admit, I struggled a bit. It's not a plural parts. It's, it's collector parts exchange or part. See, I'm doing it again. So why drop the S? There's got to be a story. Every time you say
1: parts exchange, we got to drink something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Why drop the S?
1: Originally it was that and we have that URL, but imagine the URL and you put the word parts and the word exchange next to each other. Now imagine that S not being part of parts but part of sex change. And once you see that, it's like pretty hard not to see it again. So Uh, you decided, Eh, That could be problematic. So we just went with the singular. But if you go to collector parts exchange, it still gets you to our website.
0: You bought both domains. That's a smart move. Because I was going to say parts rolls off the tongue a little bit quicker. We all default to the plural because I don't see myself buying one part. It's going to be multiple parts and all that. So you alluded to being a car guy. And obviously, invention is bred by necessity. So you must have some sort of classic car or vintage vehicle that's really... impetus behind this. So let's dive into that a little bit. Yeah,
1: I tend to like the unusual. Gotta keep
0: Portland weird, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Always. So my very first collector grade car, I'll say, was a Porsche 928. You know, when I was growing up, that was on the cover of Road and Track magazine and in all the top cars of the year type articles that you it was would...
0: also in the movie Scarface and in Risky Business. Exactly. So and and I
1: just always thought it was a really cool and interesting car, but as we all know, it was Quite unloved. It was never accepted by Porsche files. I get why that happens. I don't need to defend it. But if you just look at the car in and of itself, it's an amazing hand-built machine. And it's actually superior in many ways to the 911s in its build quality and the
0: technology that it has. And aerodynamics, but we won't get into that.
1: Even today, I look at them and I still find them to be very beautiful and even modern looking. Like the first one, I think, came out in 75 or something like that, at least the, the show car that predated it. I digress. So I had a Porsche 928. And I had a great mechanic, but finding parts for it wasn't that easy. But there were a couple of people that did that. And I drove that car. That was my daily driver. That was my only car for many years. And I put 175,000 miles on it. And it was great to own, to be honest with you. It it rarely broke down. It was hugely over-engineered. Fast forward. The, the next car I got was um, an Alfa Romeo. So I got an Alfa Romeo GTD. It's a 1972. And Ooh. I'd been in Italy and I saw one and it's like, oh, man, that is a cool car. So I went and I started shopping around and I found one in my local Alfa Romeo Club, and somebody was selling it, so I bought it. And God, what a great car that was! And just finding things for that, it was possible, but again, it was hard. It was not online. You didn't go somewhere. At least, in when I owned the car, you didn't go to some website and go click, 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 and it arrives the next day, and you can install it. It's a lot of calling around. It's a lot of like word of mouth or calling. There's this guy, John Norman, down in the Bay Area, who's got like this stash of parts. He's a great guy, but none of it's online and none of it's even really cataloged in any way. It's all cataloged in his brain. You know, you were always on the prowl for all of these parts and things that, whether it was something that broke or something that you just wanted to upgrade or tweak on your car, whether it was wheels or seats or whatever. To me, that was frustrating because we're spoiled nowadays. Honestly, whenever I click something, I expect it to basically arrive within 24 hours. And I'm exaggerating, but only a little bit. If you have to, call somebody and talk through things. It's hard to make time for that in our busy lives. So for the individual owners, that's a problem, but also even more so for restoration shops and repair shops, if you run a specialty collector vehicle service or restoration business, you have staff or a lot of your time is dedicated to calling around and trying to find what you need. And to me, that can break the back of the collector car business in many ways. Like if these parts get increasingly rare and increasingly hard to find, people aren't going to want to pay for that time to find them and do all of these things. Again, it's a problem that can be easily solved, but it's going to take a lot of work
0: and a lot of perseverance to kind of actually pull it off. And some people, might argue that that was part of the fun maybe 20 or 30 years ago, right? When you didn't have this accessibility is, is working on some of these rarer or vintage cars. You know, we have to put it in perspective. It's like a treasure hunt, right? You're out there exploring, you're meeting new people, you're discovering, oh, this guy, you know, John Norman, he's got the stash of parts in the Bay Area, you know, whatever. And then you become friends with that guy, you know, and it, and it builds these relationships and it's, it's a different way of being i suppose i came up through that era right but i also learned very quickly if i was smart especially with european cars I would cross match. I could figure out, well, that blah, 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 928 part was actually available on every Volkswagen from, you know, 1982 to 1994. So I could just go to the local junkyard and get the same thing and not pay, you know, the Porsche tax or whatever. Obviously it's more difficult with something like an Alfa Romeo or a Ferrari, but I even learned working on some British cars like Lotuses and stuff where it was like, oh, well, that's off a of Nash, which is actually off of a Chevy, you know, things like that. So again, that was part of the fun of, of learning that then you became this. Subject matter expert. But now, as you said, times have changed. A lot of those folks that we relied on as pillars in this collector car world are now, you know, maybe they're gone or they moved on or, you know, collections have been inherited by the people that were left behind. So, to your point, how do we overcome the challenge of, you know, getting let's say these large collections some might say pack rat collections yeah. up on a website let alone up on CPX? So how are you aiding people in doing that?
1: You nailed it. I think it's one of those situations where we have to help it adapt. And that's what I kind of see as the mission of Collector Part Exchange, which is helping connect these businesses to the greater global network so that people can find them. And to your point, it is part of the fun of getting to know people and trading that knowledge. But it's evaporating. It's not captured anywhere. It's all word of mouth. And those elders are moving on, whether by a choice or not. I really feel a mission to try and create an alternative path to capture that knowledge, either through community forums. We don't have those yet, but we intend to like build areas where you can go and ask for advice and get help yeah. and And ask those subject matter experts, because you don't know that subject matter expert for your car, he might be in Japan or Australia. You know, you don't know. Like the one guy who knows that model inside and out isn't in the U.S. anymore. It's somewhere else. So just having a place for that and then helping make sure that those parts don't accidentally get trashed for businesses that are going under or collectors that have, have a mass like a garage full of parts. We need to have a ready place for them to send those parts, and that's where collector part exchange comes yeah. in.
0: And you know, it always happens. And this, I saw this recently. A friend of mine unloaded a bunch of 16 valve Volkswagen stuff from the 80s, and he's like, "Nobody wants this stuff anymore." Blah blah blah. It's all trash, and he dumps it without fail. Three weeks later, somebody goes, "I'm looking for blah 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 right. for a 16 valve," and he's like, "Well, I just threw that away." I'm like, right. <laughs> "No, that that
1: happens all the time." And to me, it's like. a a little piece of my heart breaks when I hear stories like that. And I know of a really famous um, Alfa Romeo dealership on the East Coast that the guys aged out and they just wanted to be done. So they basically shut down their business put everything in some containers and people were buying entire containers of parts for like $2,000 just so that they didn't go into the landfill. We can't have that happen. I want to be tied into estate sales. I want to be tied into junkyards. I want to be tied into all these businesses and and help broker. If somebody wants to retire, Hey, I've, maybe I've had a successful business career and I'm a car guy maybe I want to take over your business for you. It's like, that would be something that we could do. But getting back to your original question, which was how do we help them get parts on right now? Anybody can load parts into our system and it's free by the way, if you sell it, it's a 5% commission. So there's no barrier to entry right now. We have people who either already sell on eBay or are a little more robust and they have things in databases. Those are our biggest sellers because we can just import their database and list their parts with it. If they have it in some sort of inventory management system, we can adapt that into our system, which is great. And that's the fastest thing. You can do it on an individual basis. It just takes a little bit of time and I've done it. And it's not that hard. It just takes a few minutes to set some pictures and create a listing. But five minutes or 10 minutes per item, it adds up if you have a pretty big collection. If you, know, you have a few boxes of stuff, that's an easy job. But if you have a big shelf rack system in the back of your garage, that's going to take a lot longer. One thing that we hear people doing is they get their kids or, you know, th- there's a guy who runs a, a shop around here. He has a guy who he pays to clean his shop. And then he said, hey, I'm going to put parts over here and you take pictures and list them and I'll pay you, you know, what we earn off of it. And that guy was like very entrepreneurial, got into it. So what we ultimately want to do is have more of a white glove system where if someone needs some help listing their parts, we can actually help them do it. We'll send some people to their site. And again, this is a future state, but hey, we can send somebody into your garage or an estate sale or whatever and get all those parts listed and that we can list them for sale or we can auction them off and then have them go away in one fell swoop. We're going to have lots of flexibility in how we sell these parts because our whole mission is however they get sold or need to be listed. We have a way to do it for anybody in this industry, whether you've been around a long time or you're just new to it and how it fits into your life. Because newer people are getting into these cars, and I love it when I go to cars and coffee or shows and I see kids running around and kids are into it. I mean, that really excites me, but by the time they become adults and are really into this hobby, the world will have changed it'll have turned over. So to me, I look at what we're doing as being the future-proofing for the hobby.
0: So that actually is a great segue into my next question, which is twofold. One, you know, we talked about the parts exchange part of the name, but we didn't define what the definition of collector was. So let's put a wrap around that. Is there a age range or year range for what collector means. And to the point that you just made, let's talk about the evolution or the EV revolution at the same time and how that's affecting the collector car world and the collector car market. You know, just to throw in there, let's talk about cash for clunkers. I think a lot of people forgot about that and how it rocked the collector car world as well. So let's yeah. let's touch on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, let's uh, take them one at a time. What you decide is a collector car is a little subjective, right? But to me, I'll go with the exception definition by the insurance companies, by the automobile world, which is essentially cars that are 25 years and older. That's ultimately the market that I want to serve, all of it, from the antiques to the modern classics and everything in between in all countries and markets, all of it. However, you can't boil the ocean. You've got to pick a little part and boil that. We've narrowed our focus initially. It's not exclusive to this, but our focus anyway, are European sports cars, we'll say 40s through 80s, kind of that range. Again, we've got lots of stuff for domestic cars. We've got even modern aftermarket wheels and things like that. So all of those things are acceptable. And even like aftermarket tuner cars, I'm down with that. If that gets somebody excited about a car, I'm all for it. So if we can have CPX or that, motorcycles anything that you want to be. I'm, I'm good with that. I I was at the Hershey show this um, October and you know, I look at all these Model T's and Model A's and things like that sitting around. And I've hung around with some hot rod guys. And it's like, great, I want to be there. Because when I was walking that huge show, have you ever been to Hershey? Yep. It's crazy. Mammoth. Yeah, it's huge. But this year, you know, it was sad because it was the first post COVID version. And it was more lightly attended. But what caught my attention was, it seemed like every fifth or sixth seller had something. It's like, buy all of my parts, just Make me get it out of here. Yeah. Like, I'm not coming back. Like, this is my last rodeo, essentially. So you kind of even see a shift there. But anything that's in that category of car is great. I think the thing that we also want to offer is not just what is defined as collectible but what we offer in terms of parts and i use that term loosely in that we've had an example where someone was looking for a Ferrari distributor for a 60s Ferrari literally a 10 plus million dollar car and they reached out to us and and i went and i found them an original one that someone had scrounged up in the UK. And that was literally a $10,000 part. I found somebody who had a remanufactured version of the original part. It's a modern construction, but made in the correct style. But you know, again, you're getting a little, you're veering a little bit from originality. What I also want to, I say, co-mingle or put on the same shelf are service providers. I know this fella down in California who can take that exact part He's an engineer and he will take it and rebuild it with, you know, more modern magnets and he'll rewire it and do all of the things. And it will be the exact part that was in the car originally. And that's a fraction of the cost. So I really love this idea of rebuilding. And I just wrote a piece about it where it's like the radical idea of rebuilding rebuilding we're so conditioned that if a part breaks that you need to go find a new one and you'll spend weeks or months kind of chasing those down when there's probably somebody out there who can fix it for you. And I want to be able to have people look at all of those options in one place and be able to choose the one that's best for them, whether it's originality or speed, or they want something that's more modern because it's going to last longer. It doesn't matter. It's like everybody has their own choice. So well, to that
0: point, the goal in all three of those use cases is to keep that particular vehicle on the road and keep it running. So yes, if you're the purist, but you have a museum quality car, you want all original matching numbers, parts and accessories, which by the way, most European cars, they never did a numbers matching. Like we stress here in America, which is, it's a truly American thing. Show me one 911, with numbers matching from any period in time. It doesn't exist. That being said, I get it. The purist wants it a certain way. For guys like myself, I frequent machine shops and fabricators all the time. I'm like, I don't care what it looks like. It needs to be functional. Most of my stuff is race cars. There are better options than the original. The reason that original part failed is it probably wasn't great to begin with. You know, so something to consider, depending on if you want to love and enjoy the car and drive it as like a daily driver versus, you know, a life-size model car, right? So there's, there's something for everybody in that statement
1: let me see there were two other parts of that conversation there
0: was there was and so it was cash for clunkers and how it affected the collector car world because there were a lot of folks turning in by turbo maseratis and ur quattros and all this stuff saying i can get more money for this car than it's worth today which now we fast forward you know 10 or 15 years and the used car market is through the roof and the other side of that is now that we are in 2022 how does the evolution or the ev revolution change the collector car landscape as well yeah
1: you know i think cash for clunkers i hadn't really thought about that for a while but yeah you're right that did kind of move the needle and i'd say the thing that's really moved the needle more recently is bring a trailer
0: chaos online yeah yeah (laughs)
1: well i i think what it's done is make collecting cars like fun and cool again and accessible to a new generation of buyers i think ultimately that's what bring a trailer's gift to the car community is it's but there's
0: also there's a dark side to it and i joke and we joke about bring a trailer a lot i i love it we're all addicted to it but the problem is it feels like how far can we push the envelope on these prices sometimes and and you know that these some of these deals don't end at the value that they you know that they closed that i'm like this is making it worse for people that are trying to sell on more you know local venues like you know facebook marketplace suddenly they go well i saw an e30 bmw sell and bring a trailer for a quarter million dollars so obviously mine is worth 125. <laughs> It definitely is. I think that'll all correct out
1: eventually, you know. I, it's I, like the I housing bubble, a right? A bit of a bubble. And as you well know, like the collector car hobby was counter pandemic. Like it was one of those hobbies that soared in the pandemic because it was something that we could all do by ourselves. Let's talk about EVs because I love EVs. I'm excited about EVs. And I actually, Haggerty in December, put out their bull market list for 2022. And on that list was the Tesla Roadster which is... For those of you who may recall, it was a Lotus Elise body that they put batteries in and electrified. And that was the very first kind of mainstream Tesla product. They look cool. They are great cars. I have a friend who has one and and I just I had dinner with him last night. And I said, if you're ever thinking about getting rid of that, let me know because I want it. I, I want it really bad. It's a six figure valuation now because Tesla has become something more. It's like the Model T of the EV world in some ways. So I think they're exciting cars and they're going to be collectible. And we all know that back in the early day, there were lots of electric cars. So it's kind of back to the future. You know, in the early days of cars, there was petrol, there was electric and there was steam. For a while, they were all equal. And women, for a reason, liked the electric vehicles because they didn't require a starter. So when they were in their fancy dresses, they didn't have to get out and kind of like go crank the little crank arm uh, to turn the motor over. So I think there's two vectors where we're going in the future which is autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles. And I'm excited for both. I think they're both important. I believe that you can't stop progress. Progress is going to happen. So you kind of just do with it what you can. It will have a downstream impact on the collector car hobby as we get more electrified because we're not a generation away from not being able to get gas. But like some of my cars, I want to run on race fuel. Well, it's like, There's a couple pumps in my area where you can get that easily. I think that's going to be at some point, and I'm talking at 40 years from now, where that's going to be hard. That's going to be a bit more challenging to find. And I think when we have autonomous vehicles where it's pretty easy to imagine the interstate highway system getting to a point where take your car on the interstate and it's just running autopilot. So people who don't have those types of cars are going to be excluded from those because one dope in a Ford Mustang cutting off an EV car or an autonomous car is gonna... coming out
0: of a cars and coffee, but you know, what? Yeah, it's going
1: gonna, it's gonna to break everything, right? All of a sudden, it's just going to be trash. So you're going to be excluded. So I think at some point, it'll be like national parks for driving roads, like you'll have to go out into the country and, you know, have like certain kind of beacons and technology to help make sure that you don't mess up and accidentally clash with an autonomous thing but we'll see how all that plays out more to your point evs are exciting i think it's great no problems it's just going to make gas harder to come by ultimately but it's the right thing to do i'm an environmentalist i want i think we need to make some changes and and i'm all for it one exception to that rule is do not take your collector car and turn it into an electric vehicle i I
0: was wondering if we were going to go there because that's that's the other side of that conversation. It's
1: an abomination.
0: <laughs> we talk about that quite a bit. It comes up almost every month on the drive through Yet another British company that's converting classic Aston Martin or Lotus right. or whatever have you to an EV. Obviously, EV West out in California has been doing Volkswagens and Porsches for years now, using Tesla power plants and things like that. It's gaining popularity. I sort of like the idea. I see it both ways. In terms of now I can be ecologically friendly and still drive a 1950s 356 and be super cool and and it's retro and it's hip. But there's the dark side of that equation, which somebody actually brought up in a recent conversation, which was, yes, it's an abomination to your point, but also you paid a million bucks to turn a vintage DB6 into an EV. And now that guy's left with this classic petrol power plant and it's sitting on a shelf in a crate for years and years and years. And suddenly it becomes cool again to have a petrol car. You're going to pay for this conversion like 12 times by the time it's all said and done. Yeah, to me, it doesn't make
1: sense. I get the appeal, and I will put limits on it. If it's a mass produced car, a VW Beetle, hey, there were millions of those made, and they, they were made up until the 80s in Mexico and 2003. Yeah, 2003, even better, right? It's like, I'm cool. Like if it's a mass produced vehicle, no problem, commit it to an EV. But taking something that's somewhat rare and turning it into an EV, to me, it takes the whole spirit of the car away. It's like that part of the experience of a car. is leaving it in its proper state, so that you can hear the sounds, you can have the correct gear shifts, and all of those experiences It's not just the look of the car, in my opinion. It's the car in toto that is really important to preserve. I look at them as historical objects, and you wouldn't take other antiquities and try and change them. I'm not saying that they're worth that, but to me, it's really important to keep them as they are. And that's just my opinion. I know other people have different opinions. No, and
0: and you're not wrong because it's been said before that vehicles, if you kind of stand back and look at them in their parts and not as whole, first of all, you're right, they're time capsules. They are signs of the time in which they were created. And and some of those cars were created earlier than when they were sold as well. So you got to kind of put that in perspective. But you take something like one of the cars I absolutely can't stand, the Citroën DS. A lot of people love that thing, but it is also quintessential French and also quintessential 60s. It is a sign of the time. But when you take that vehicle apart, you have to look at it for its pieces and (laughs) to to be punny, I suppose, Mm -hmm. in that the science, the engineering the aerodynamics, the fluid dynamics, every person that was involved in that, a car is not created in a vacuum, nor is it just an appliance. It is a culmination of a team of people and their imagination to create this thing. And as I dove into and worked on vintage vehicles, first question sometimes comes across your mind is, why in the hell did they do it that way? And then you realize, this was cutting-edge technology in 1961. And so you have to be somewhat respectful of what you're being presented with. And so looking at those time capitals for what they are and preserving them to your point is super important. It's also really kind of cool. And so there's a lot to be learned from that. But you also start to realize that some ideas that are presented as new even today were invented many, many years ago.
1: Yeah, that's the best part of it, in my opinion, is it and I loved how you described that. It's like they are these things, but they're also visceral experiences like Hearing a inline four in my Alpha is a cool experience. That's just part of it. And I get the environmental impact, but I truly believe that we use these cars so little. The average collector car is driven about 2,000 miles
0: a year, maybe 20 right. miles or something like that, I think is what I read.
1: That's negligible because- My I...
0: lawnmower emits more than the classic car does. You know what I mean? Exactly. They have a reason to exist.
1: And that reason gets harmed if you tamper with them and kind of change them from fundamentally what they are, were created to be. Right. It's a philosophy. It's just something that I, I don't like. When I see people take really nice cars and turn them into EVs, like a DB6, for example, that really gets my goat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a legit thing. It's been of, of recent news, too. That oh, that I happened. saw it. I saw it. And I, it's like hey. DB fours, fives, and sixes. I was like, just uh, shook my head at all of it. But, you know, this actually gives me a great opportunity to ask you two pit stop style questions while we're at it. One of which I've never asked somebody on our show, which is, what's the best sounding engine?
1: The one that I imprinted on is the Countach, oh. the
0: 12
1: I think the Lamborghini engines sound better than the Ferrari V12s and maybe an Aston Martin V12 sounds as good. But I imprinted on it in watching the opening scene of Cannonball Run. That scene, the first five minutes of that movie where they're running that white Lamborghini down those, I think, Nevada highways... I never saw a car that looked like that. And I never heard a car that sounded anything close to that. As I'm talking about, I can hear that in my mind, like that noise, just that throaty growl. And yeah, it's got to be a V12 and specifically a Lamborghini
0: V12. I want to remind our listeners yet again that petrol heads of a certain age, the answer is always Lamborghini Countach. (laughs) 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 It's funny because I... I didn't really like V8s for a long
1: time, but now I've really come around, and a great V8 sounds amazing. But shoot, I've got people with I don't know the boxer fours. I've owned Porsches, you know those boxer sixes are pretty great. I don't know, they all they they're all good in their own way. But if I had to pick one, yes, it would have to be the Lamborghini Kutosh. And you're exactly right. There's a whole generation of cannonball run heads that, like I said, imprinting is real. And that was the first like mass market exotic car. that yeah, was, it was. Even like James Bond movies didn't quite make the impact that that exact movie did but yeah um, the
0: Testarossas weren't nearly as popular as the Countach you know in comparison and they came out at the same time so think yeah. about it that way which actually leads into my other more famous <laughs> more normal pit stop question which is maybe the answer is the same the sexiest car of all time in your opinion oh
1: it's similar but it's not the same oh okay um, i have two and they're kind of similar one is the Lamborghini Miura. I went to a car show when I was a kid. My I don't come from a family of car people. So I kind of was like, forging my own path. So I had my driver's license and I saw that a car show was coming and there was going to be a Lamborghini Countach there. So it's like, I'd never seen one. So I went to this car show and I saw it. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but it didn't look exactly how I imagined it. It was smaller. It was a little more tiny. and
0: Oh, I thought you were going to say the opposite. The first time I stood next to an F40, I I wept a little bit, you know? Yeah,
1: well... (laughs) Countach, it's kind of the proportion and the wheel sizes and stuff kind of like didn't totally hit me. But part of the reason was it was right next to a Lamborghini Murra. that I was like, it was crazy low to the ground. It was swoopy. It was, man, I did. It was wider, you know, the stance, just everything about it, I thought was great. So if I had to pick one, I'd probably say that, but an Alfa Romeo Tipo 33 Stradale is arguably the most beautiful car of of my preference, you know, but now I'm going to change one more time, which is I love 50s sports cars, like Maseratis and those open top road racing cars, like the original Testarossas and Maserati 300s and 450 S's and those sorts of things are just, I will stick by my answer. I'll go with the Lamborghini Miura, but I think ultimately if I had to pick, they're far, far less common, but the Tipo 33 Stradale is right up there.
0: Before we get back to our main thought here, I do have one more pit stop question I want to ask you. And I think it's important because, you know, you came from the the IT world, from the startup world. You're used to being in the boardroom and obviously decisions have to get made and you're the last one and it rides on you. And you have to pick between the legendary Porsche 959, and
1: the F40. Which one is it? F40. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm an Italian car guy, if you haven't deduced that. Although I've earned own Porsches, of course, but uh, they're both great cars. To me, I think that those are perfect cars to put side by side. And I think it's it's a head versus heart thing in many ways. Like you look at the the 959 and it's like, what an amazing piece of technology that was. And the F40, it wasn't that level of technology. They used F1 technology and it, it was important, but it wasn't like as innovative or cutting edge as
0: the 959.
1: They're both cool. They're both beautiful. But the sounds and oh man, that F40 is just crazy.
0: So I guess we should probably get back to talking about CPX. Right, well, we're here. Ask more headstop questions. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> So, why don't we dive into some of maybe the more technical details about the site? So, obviously, we talked about the year ranges. So, you're talking about anything from the turn of the 20th century up through 1997 at this point. I mean, that was 25 years ago, folks, 1997, which means all of my Mark IV VWs still are not old enough to be on the collector parts exchange. But, you know, a couple more years will be okay, which actually brings up a great point. If a car is within a generation and the generation begins within that, year range. Does that qualify? Can you go up through? again,
1: We don't really police it. What we don't want are people coming onto the site and selling what you could get at Napa. We have no desire to be in that commoditized business where it's just like moving parts along. We want to be the place where you go for the hard to find not exclusively, but We've got a seller who sells Lancia parts, you know, not a popular mark, but he's got a following and there's plenty of them around. Sure. If you need a water pump for it, it's not an exciting part, but it's a specific water pump. So I want you to be able to find that here. But if it's something that you could just go anywhere and get at any time, eh, it's not as exciting or not as interesting. Right. I'd rather have it be a, a more curated experience for people where they come in and they find the hard to find.
0: Maybe something even rare, though, it could be modern. Like, for instance, in my generation of Volkswagens that everybody knows I'm in love with, you know, there's some Benetton parts that were created, very limited numbers, you know, things like that. I could see finding their way onto something like CPX because they were in such limited quantities. You know, that's important kind of stuff to have out there for somebody that's trying to recreate the period or trying to get that novelty part a little bit more about what you mentioned earlier. Obviously, it's free to list. There's a 5% commission if something sales, you know, based on the value of the sale itself. So it kind of sounds a little bit like the brokering on eBay, but the simplicity of listing reminds me of some other sites where it's take the picture, do your listing on your phone, submit it what I'm wondering is, is everybody getting a personalized storefront like an eBay, or are they connecting to their back ends? On the more technical note, how is all this orchestrated for folks that already have something in place versus somebody that's coming at this for the first time going, man, I just want to clear out all this junk out of my garage?
1: Well, we'll take the second case there, just the individual folks. You know, it's super simple to list. We've tried to make it as streamlined. The user experience or UI in the the jargon of the tech world, we're trying to replicate the jitterbug cell phone. (laughs) I want it to be built for your 85-year-old grandmother could uh, list parts on this site and not really have a problem doing it. We don't always achieve that, but for the most part, we want it to be as simple as, as it can be. From that standpoint, to sell a part you register on the site and then you do have to create a store, and it takes five minutes to set up. Just have to connect it to your bank account. So we use on the back end Stripe, which is a very popular payment system, fastest growing one, super secure. They're great to work with. You just connect your bank account to Stripe, and then you're good to go. And if you put a bunch of parts on there. If you wanted one for GTM, you could create a store for yourself on our site. You could point people directly to that store if you want, or all of your stuff is just kind of generally available in this big mishmash of parts that are within the system. And then on this buyer side, we've put a lot of investment into making you be able to find what you're looking for with the least amount of effort. So we've got for tech people, natural language search built into the system itself. And we've also architected the site to have the proper structure so that web crawlers like Google and Bing and all of those other places can find what's in our site quite easily. So if you go and search for a part in Google, we want you to find it, but it'll probably be listed on our site. We've engineered the site so it's got all of those properties just inherently built into it. But getting back to the selling part, yeah, you set up a store, And then you can take your cell phone and you can just go out in your garage and take some pictures and you can start listing them piece by piece. And if someone is interested in it, they can buy it and you work out what the shipping would be. The problem with car parts is oftentimes they're odd sizes. And they're they're heavy. Yeah, someone bought a transmission or bought a, a car door. You're not able to just go down to the local FedEx stop and like chuck that across the counter at them. It takes a little more effort than that. Or people might be overseas or they might be in a hurry. So you just work out what the shipping is and off it goes. That's the most streamlined way to get things done. One other thing that I'd like to mention is we encourage open communication between buyer and seller. Like eBay, one of the things that they do that annoys people is you can't just say, hey, call me. If you even try and send somebody your email address, they intercept it and scrape it out or phone number, like they just disallow it. And car parts do not work that way. It requires a high amount of communication to make sure that you're getting the exact part that you need cuz you don't want to go to the effort of shipping something out and having somebody get it and have it not be the right thing and and then you have to either return it or figure out some way to figure out how to resolve that issue you can talk to people openly so if you there's a part if you look anywhere on our site there's a button that says send the buyer a message and you can just like it's basically like a chat they'll get a message and you'll start talking to each other and figuring out what you need or call them you know everybody's name is exposed so So it's like when you're on our site, you can go in and you'll know that, oh, well, that's um, La Lancia down in California. You know, if you want, you can reach out to them. We're pretty much trusting the universe because there's some people will take advantage of that and just go around it. But. We really believe that the 5% commission and all of those sorts of things really make the bar quite low and doesn't discourage people from going around. It's not like if we were charging 20%, people would be going all over the place, and we'd have to put in guidelines to make sure that they don't leak around our system versus going direct. If you're a bigger system and a bigger company, this is more than just a hobby. If you have an eBay store, we can take all of your eBay inventory and replicate it on our site and you can sell them both side by side. And when we outperform eBay, uh, you can take your eBay store down, right? And (laughs) we've got guys who are like wishing for that because eBay is really hard to deal with. Especially with car parts, they have a standard policy where they side with the buyer. So if a buyer goes, oh, they shipped that car door to me and it wasn't as described, it had more scratches on it. eBay will almost, without even talking to the seller, just like refund their money and take the money out of your account. I mean, I've heard numerous horror stories where things are happening like that. And they're quite expensive. They're more probably in real dollars, like 15 or 20% or even more to sell on eBay. Whereas we're obviously quite low, but we're small, we're lean, we're mean, and we can get it done because we've tried to build some efficiencies into the system. So we can sync up if you have it in eBay, if you have it on your own site, we can take all of your inventory and replicate it on our site, which the advantage of that is what I already alluded to, which is the search engine stuff. And then we promote our items in Google Marketplace and other type areas. So people find things. It's funny. I had a, a seller who sells British parts out of Tennessee. He was starting to see a fair amount of sales coming through Collector Part Exchange. So he looked and he only had like a few dozen parts listed. It's like, wow, that's like an unusually high volume, given the amount of inventory that I have on there. So he started looking and he started searching for his own parts in Google. His parts were coming up on our site, not on his own site, that he's had it established for years because search engines are goofy. It's a black art, as you well know. Trying to deal with that is not something that a car person wants to deal with. And I think that's one of the fundamental reasons like all of these car guys don't have e-commerce sites because... There's a lot of trickery and expense and just stuff that you don't want to necessarily deal with. So you just kind of stick with your old ways and deal with your normal customers and off you go. And that's been good enough. But I think that's not going to be good enough going into the future.
0: What's that saying about good enough is the enemy of greatness and (laughs) and all that? So that actually makes me think of two different questions. One of them, I want to emphasize the word part yet again. So I'm assuming it's not just water pumps and radiators and headlights. It could also include memorabilia, shop manuals, original things like that, badges and things like that you see at these swap meets, like you said. So that's something else because I've looked for that myself, like some original documentation going back in time. And that's also difficult to get your hands on. It also makes me think how often do parts or new parts get listed on the Site and I can imagine that's very ad hoc unless there's some sort of gating system where you guys are verifying the part before it gets listed.
1: We're on the honor system. We're we're kind of if someone misrepresents or puts junky parts in, we'll kind of see it, but we'll deactivate it. Like we've been approached by companies in other parts of the world. I won't name names, but you can probably deduce. And uh, it's like no, we we're good. We don't need that. Like that isn't interesting to us. You know, essentially there's parts getting added all the time and you know it comes in fits and starts but there's always something changing on the site every single day whether you know there is parts that have gotten sold out of inventory cuz they only had one of them or parts that are getting added and we're working really hard to Get people more comfortable with listing parts. So, we've got some changes that I think we're going to make on the back end to make it a little bit easier for people to just do things in bulk. The problem is, like, if you think about your own garage, you go, oh, yeah, I've got six boxes of stuff. How many do you think you have in
0: your garage? I have a 24 by 12 container full of Volkswagen parts. So I got quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's
1: use you as the guinea pig here. It's like to go and list those parts you'd have to take a few weeks off of work. Pretty Um, much. It's one of my
0: winter goals and many winters have gone by.
1: (laughs) Right, right. No, it's a, but if you can get a process going, so what I want to do is create tutorials. It's like, here's the most efficient way to list. Here's the most efficient way to list a thousand parts and everything in between. And just kind of like have little guidelines for people to go, okay, well, here's a system. Like if you're doing a bunch, go and take pictures. Just do the pictures. Don't worry about everything else. Just like go out into your container, have a little light box or whatever set up. And you go in, get a part, take five pictures, next part, next part, next part, next part, and do that. Those sorts of things. So there's just going to be techniques that we're going to have to teach people to do it. But, you know, that's a big job and it's going to take you a while to do that. But we've also created something called part ping, which is part of CPX, which If you have something that you can't find on the site, you can put out a little ping for it. What we'll do is go to people that we know have those types of parts and ask them if they've got it. Somebody was looking for a VW part. And now actually I will just include you. If I find somebody who needs a VW part, someone was just reaching out for pistons for an 84 Scirocco. I was like, I might know
0: somebody, so yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's like, I'll send it to you because it'll help you and it'll help them. So, hey, we just want to connect the dots for you. The point in me bringing that up though is until the point when you actually have everything listed there's still ways for you to connect with customers, which is through this process. And we're actually finding some success with it. So we want to try and automate it even further. Where, like, if someone is looking for parts for Volkswagens from a certain era or even just like specific submodels, like you could go and pick out, it's like if somebody's looking for something, I've got things for these models. So I will automatically get notified that somebody's looking for it.
0: Are you able to designate the exact part number that you're looking for? Because obviously, in in the VAG system, there's a very logical way that they do all that by part number. And so it's like, I need O2J, da, 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 you know, whatever. And if somebody's got that, then it's easy to look it up, right?
1: Yes, we we definitely support that. But for you, you might not know what your parts are. Right. right. You may not have the books and manuals to be able to do that.
0: Which was actually part of my question. When you're cataloging, are you guys leveraging any OCR to say, hey, when I take a picture of this particular 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 part, if the part number is recognizable, that's being extracted by the software itself you're ahead
1: of the game, but yes, we are definitely thinking about doing all of that, which is optical character recognition for all of those who don't know what the that non-nerds.
0: I, I get what you're saying.
1: <laughs> you're just, <laughs> you've got your pinwheel hat on right now. No, uh, ultimately it'd be great if you could just hold up your phone and point it at something and it would automatically recognize it, but that's going to take a long time to actually evolve and may never actually come to be. But What you could do is, oh, if you know what it is, and even if you have a part number or something or a serial number or something that you can identify it with, you can put it in and then it'll auto populate what that part is. It'll go, oh, well, it's a Morelli O2-36 slash B distributor. Oh, okay. Well, here's one. I've already got pictures of that. So you can just like represent these pictures and we'll put not the actual part that you'll be buying. You can put what condition it is. You could add some pictures if it's got some mods or, damage or something like that. And it'll definitely compress the time it'll take. So to me, it's important to realize we are six months old. We have tens of thousands of ideas that we need to execute against, but we're a very lean and mean team and we'll get there in due course. So we're, we welcome these ideas and these brainstorms because we've come up with very few of them. It's been ideas of others who have approached us and said, hey, you could do this or that or this system does that you know, over here and in this other part of my life, you should be able to do that. And, And you're right. There are like huge databases that have catalogs that we're working to get tapped into. The problem is... Those things really came into force like in the 80s, where the parts were really systematized and had like universal numbering and things like that. That yep. was a little bit more commonplace. And it can be frustrating because in the 50s and 60s and 70s, none of that existed or very little of it. Ex- I think actually
0: in the US stuff, it existed, but in the Porsche stuff, I know it did. They've been using, yeah. you know, 901 yeah. for a very long time. Yeah, exactly. So you could have. <laughs> You get, you, there are some
1: places it's not evenly distributed. Yeah, uh, I can I can promise you Alfa Romeo was not
0: doing any of that. No, no. Dr. Portia was ahead of his time, but we'll leave that where it is, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually, you know, we talked about a lot of what CPX is, but I don't think we've touched upon what it isn't. I'm going to reframe one of my earlier questions to say what things shouldn't be or won't ever be listed on CPX?
1: That's a great question, but I aspire to have more in it than not in it. Like I was saying earlier, I don't want to become the, maybe at some point it'll make sense to do the part store kind of thing, but I don't think so.
0: We did episodes in the past with members of the Classic Car Club of America. We've had, you know, Sal Fanelli on from Porsche Diesel. And we talk about collector market there, but that's tractors. You know, we recently uh, saw an article come across our desk about the Ferrari speedboat, things like that. So yeah. does this go beyond cars into yes. boats and aircraft and, and tractors? Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. I love all of
1: those things. I was really hot to trot to get a a Greyhound bus about a year and a half ago. I was like actually going out and looking at them and it's like, crap, I want to have bus parts and things like that. Yeah, so... I see it as being all of the above is or as much as the above that makes sense. What I mean by that, I could even see tires, for example, being sold on our site, but it would be more like those Avon tires or the more specialty tires. We do not want to compete with Tire Rack or name your Tires Direct or whatever brand you care to mention. Tire Rack does that great. Where someone has solved that problem, I don't need to go and resolve it. And I would even build partnerships. It's like, oh, well, if you're looking for that, hey, we tap into name your big auto parts guy thing and you can tap into their inventory and and do it that way. I'm okay with that because... That's good for everybody. Essentially, I just want this to be the place where you can go. If you need a new upholstery, you can get new upholstery. You can get buttons remanufactured. In the future, I imagine things where we 3D print on demand switches. There's 3D printers that do metal. People are building printed cars right now. I mean, it's a big thing that's happening. Using SourceForge is the mainstream technology that you can buy today to do that. That is amazing. And I think that's going to be the lifeline for a lot of these cars, because some of those super original parts, they will be non-existent. They just won't. So you get somebody who has one, you borrow it from them, you laser scan it, you print it out and you've got to the mill exact copy. And maybe even with a better material, that's going to be more you know suitable. Now that we know better, I really want this to be that proverbial huge swap meet in the cloud where Anything that you can imagine and automobilia, yes, a million times. Yes, some people have put some really cool stuff on CPX already. There's a guy who has some trophies that Roger Penske won when he was racing and he's selling those types of things. I mean,
0: that's super you cool. would think Penske would want those back, right? Yeah, they I don't think they were like his really good ones, so <laughs> <laughs> they're all the third place trophies. Nobody cares yeah, about yeah, that. It's like
1: the trophy and it's got Roger's DNA on it somewhere, but no, no that's
0: that's always fun. The memorabilia, what do we call the automobilista stuff, you know, the lifestyle stuff, or even the petroliana. I mean, yeah. all of that, right. It's part of the larger community. And to see that all in one place and have it accessible, you know, maybe I want to buy a Sinclair pump along with my Alfa Romeo water pump housing and whatever else I need, you know, so one-stop got, shopping, right. You've got a,
1: a guy who's got a neon sign on there. So, and books, I'm looking up at my bookshelves in my office, and they're filled with car books and, and models. I love car models. One of the things I was doing some stuff for like vintage racing, old like 50s style stuff, and I could not find helmets. Those old 50s helmets, Sterling Moss, most people don't realize this, but his racing helmet, which is pretty iconic, was just a polo helmet. I mean, the guy was out driving. That was the only helmet that was commercially available in the public at that time. So he races cars in polo helmet, as did a lot of the guys of the day. So, but they're hard to find. And hey, if someone has them and they want to sell them in, on CPX. I think that's the thing to do. And I know you're into the racing world. I would love to be able to like, support the racing community in and of itself too. Just hey.
0: I could definitely see a connection between you guys and racing junk because what do we do with race cars? We strip them down and all those original factory parts end up somewhere either in a trash heap or somebody else going, hey, I got a street car that'll go on, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. So that's a great also connection. So we're not just throwing those harder to find parts in the trash anymore.
1: Your question of what's excluded. I mean, the one big thing that I will say is like, I don't want to sell cars. We do have have a section that we call project cars. So I was going to
0: say rolling chassis are probably yeah, yeah. okay, we got, right? We've got
1: people who have like midway through some sort of build or whatever, and they kind of tap out or whatever, or people have chased project cars and they aren't. So we've got a few Ferraris. We've got a Lamborghini chassis. On there, even a race car, a Maserati race car, I think listed on our site. So if I had time and money to do it, I would I would take on that project myself, but I don't at this particular moment. So I look at it and I go, gosh, the reason we started this business is because no one was doing it and the only place that people really had was eBay. And eBay is still probably pretty good for cars, but it's pretty rough for collector car parts, in my opinion. And the things like when you search for something, you get presented with 20 sponsored items from floor mats to something that has nothing to do with your car whatsoever, it gets really hard to find exactly what you're looking for because people game the system and it's annoying. That was part of the reason that we were inspired to do it was there was no one
0: doing it or if they were doing it, they were doing it in a way that was detrimental to the hobby. And necessity breeds invention, right? So I think you guys are you guys are definitely onto something.
1: Yeah, uh,
0: it's going to take a while, though. It's a it's a big, <laughs> nasty, hairy problem, and I like all IT projects are exactly day,
1: right. So I I've always liked the idea of call them unsexy projects because there's some people like even in business, like when people would go, oh man, I don't want to like do we have to like catalog or clean out that closet or something like that, you know? And you know, we're a tech company and all that. No, that actually needs to get done. We're moving offices and we've moved this pile of stuff 10 times in the the last five years. It's like someone's got to take this on. So going in and like tearing that out and just figuring out what needs to be done. I don't know. There's a satisfaction in doing something that is maybe not as interesting, but I find it interesting. Like solving this problem is genuinely meaningful to me. And I think it's going to be meaningful to others over the long haul for this hobby. And if we can create the one central place when you're restoring or repairing or maintaining your collector vehicle and the one place you think of to go to when you need something for it, whether it's advice, a picture, a video, or a part or service... I want you to think of CPX first and that's where I want you to go.
0: I couldn't agree more and I think what you guys are doing is absolutely awesome because I've struggled with this dilemma myself and you know to your point cataloging this is one of those things that it's I always get issued around to it for our listeners that are of a certain age know what exactly what that is and you always mm-hmm. say you're going to get around to it and it's difficult because every journey starts with a step. Inventorying car parts is one of those things that it's like Do we start with the nuts and bolts or the fenders and the doors, you know, and and, and somewhere you got to get it all done and it's difficult. So I'm glad you're facilitating a way to make it easier to get it out there to other people that need it and hopefully clear out my container full of Volkswagen parts. So with that being said, Chris, any shout outs, promotions, things you want to talk about or other services, things that you're into that you want people to know about before we wrap up this episode?
1: Hey, sign up for our newsletter. We do a weekly newsletter and I produce it myself. It's all kind of like a, we're a cottage industry. And, you know, like I wrote the history of Bosch fuel injections this week. And, you know, there's lots of information that I think you'll just find generally interesting and valuable, but go ahead and check out Collector Part Exchange. Find something that you want in there. Create an account, but also think about what's in your own garage and make a New Year's resolution. Hey, Happy New Year, everybody. It's 2022. Let's get in there and clean out one box of stuff in the back of your garage. Like If you could do that, that would be great for us and great for other people in the car community to make sure that some of the best parts in the world are in boxes in the back of a garage, you know, not all barn finds are cars. A lot of the barn finds are parts stashes that people have like hoarded over these years. Something that you've got is going to be valuable to someone else. So go and get it back in circulation. So it's not just collecting dust and someone else can have the value of that part that's probably been created for 50 or 60 years and it needs a new home.
0: Well, Chris, I know you enjoyed our pit stop questions so much. So I figure, you know what, how about, one last one before we close out oh yeah bonus round (laughs) maybe maybe two maybe two i got two Uh, in mind lightning round nightmare car that you would still own i've heard they're nightmares
1: in fact i've heard never buy one but i really 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 want one which is a renault r5 t2 oh my god those are so
0: cool drove one wrote an article about it it's one of those never drive your heroes moments is it (laughs) <laughs> I'll send you the link. How about that? You can read the okay. article. Yeah, I'll
1: have to look that up because yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, oh gosh, yeah. You can think of lots of crappy cars. Like that's an easy way to go. Like I would never own a Pontiac Aztec, you know? It's like, in my opinion,
0: <laughs> all time worst car ever created. Oh, and, I love it. We always go to the Aztec for some reason. <laughs>
1: It was horrible the moment it came out. I don't know what someone was even thinking when they came out with that car. Uh, Yeah, total nightmare.
0: So if you could have a beer with, or maybe a glass of wine, depending, or maybe it's bourbon with either Clarkson, Hammond, or May, who would it be? Hmm, probably the hamster. You know what, congratulations. You are the first person to yeah. actually select Richard Hammond as the person they would have a beer with. So now I need to know why. <laughs> no, no, I think he's an interesting guy. I think he and I share a taste in cars. Like uh, Clarkson is a
1: narcissist and that would get on my nerves. I don't think I'd want to be around that for too long. And May is, he's actually a pretty interesting guy, but I don't know. I, I think the hamster is... I don't know. He's the one who's crashed the most cars. I want to hear about, like, he's almost killed himself multiple times on that show. I mean, I'm down for that. (laughs) It starts with, what were you thinking?
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Hey, guys, watch this. (laughs) Yeah, hey, hold my beer, right? (laughs) Well, Chris, this has been an absolute blast. So I wanna summarize our whole conversation here by reminding everybody that Collector Parts Exchange is putting greatly needed parts back into circulation that would otherwise continue to collect dust in someone's basement or garage and remain unused. They're doing their part to help preserve the collector car hobby and its culture. Their goal is to be the hub for all collector car repair and maintenance where people can go for information and networking about parts, providers, car information, automobilia, and more. So if you're struggling to find the right part for your classic vintage or 25 year or older vehicle, don't wait. Be sure to check out www.collectorpartexchange.com as your source for those harder to find items. And why not make it a new year's resolution to clean out that garage, shed, or shop, upload those parts laying around and turn them into cash to buy parts that you can actually use. Remember, it's free, it's easy. There's tutorials on the site that'll help you out and get you started very quickly. And don't forget to sign up for their weekly CPX newsletter that has interesting stories and newly listed parts as part of the highlight. With that, be sure to follow them on social media at Collector Part Exchange on Facebook and at CPX guys on Instagram, as well as their YouTube channel. So Chris, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This has been an education and I look forward to working with you on future projects and listing some of my own parts on CPX. So thank you for doing this for the community. We wish you the best of success in the coming years. Thank you and happy new year to everybody. Have a great 2022. That's right, listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our Patreon for a follow on Pit Stop Mini-Sode. So check that out on www.patreon.com forward slash Motorsports and get access to all sorts of behind the scenes content from this episode and more. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.